And now, Father, for many, many centuries, your people have met on Sundays to break open this precious book to discover you and to discover your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the power of your Spirit and the wisdom of your Spirit, we do find him here. And we learn more about him than we ever dreamed. Because you are God. He is God. He is God in the flesh. And he has come to save. He has come on a mission from the Father to save the lost. And now, Father, as we continue our study in John, I pray that you would magnify the glory of your Son. Magnify the glory of yourself, O Father. And perhaps tacitly, Remind us of the glory of your spirit who works all things in all ways to bring sinners to Christ. And teach us, Father, as sons and daughters of God, I pray that you would open up the curtain, as it were, and let us see more of your glory. We pray, as, as Moses did, Lord, you have a great work for us to do, and some of it is difficult and sometimes scary But Lord, if we know your glory, we know your greatness, we know your majesty and know that you are for us, we can go on. So reveal to us some of the greatness of your glory. Father, I pray that you would bless this inadequate servant to put words together in a way that helps us to see them, perhaps as through a mirror darkly, but to see them indeed. Lord, these things I pray by the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I know you're nice and comfy in your seats, but if you could stand with me again. And let's uh, read John chapter 6, our text for this morning, and a little bit of our text next week. The nice thing about having two services is the first service I uh, was hoping to get further along than I would, and now I have a more realistic perspective. So those of you who come to the second service get the more realistic sermon than they got in the first service. But John chapter 6, I'm going to read everything I read to them, beginning with verse 41. We'll read through verse um, 58. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who is heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, 
uh, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live before, because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats the bread will live forever. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Last week, we learned about the dual natures of Jesus Christ. And in case you're visiting here, it is not my intention uh, to come and, and present a theological discussion, but this, these texts require a, if you're going to understand them, we need to dig a little bit. We need to dig, and, and as we dig, we find gold. Every time I dig in the text, especially in John, I find treasure. And part of my job is to bring it to you in a manner that I think you can receive and without, without turning this into some kind of a seminary course. But we did last week learn something about the two natures of Jesus, that he is both divine and human. He is God and man. And this is important because this is exactly the sticking point for these Jews who were at the synagogue hearing Jesus teach. They could see very clearly that he was human, no doubt about that. But they simply would not believe he was divine. He had come down out of heaven, as he was claiming. That was ridiculous to them. It was simply impossible for them to conceive the idea that a man could be God, especially this man who they kind of knew. And yet, here he was standing in front of them, proving again and again by his teaching and by his miracles, miracles that they had participated in. They had eaten the bread that he multiplied when he fed the 5,000. And yet, they found it quite impossible to believe that he was the promised Christ, the Messiah. And so they would not believe. We call this the bread of life discourse. Jesus is offering them eternal life, and he's doing it as a baker would come, stand out on the street corner, and offer his bread. And he's saying, listen, this, is, this bread is good. My offer of eternal life is a marvelous thing. Come, it's free. It's free. Come and, and take it and eat it, and, and it'll transform you. You'll have eternal life. And for those who believe, they look at the bread and they say, that is the sweetest stuff you'll ever eat in your entire life. And you can eat it every day. You can gorge yourself on it every day. The more you eat it, the more you love it. But to the unbeliever, they look at it and it looks moldy and maggot-ridden and kind of rancid. And they have no desire whatsoever to receive this gospel 
It'd be like eating old, moldy, stale bread. You know the kind you find in the back of your pantry or in the back of your refrigerator, and you pull it out and go, I don't even know what that is. It's green, and it's got spots, and I don't want to eat that. That's the way they see the gospel. It's why they see Jesus saying, I've come down from heaven. I am the bread of life, and I offer the bread to you for salvation. And they don't want to have any part. And, and here's the thing. Neither did you. Before God did something in your heart, neither did you. And we're all in this together. This is not an us and them. This is just us, sinners. And in the mystery of his providence, he rescued me. And he rescued you if you know him. My friends, this is important because this is very similar to the predicament that our unbelieving friends and family members are in. They just find it impossible to believe that this man, Jesus, if he existed at all, could possibly be God. And that somehow they should put all of their hopes, all of their desires, all of their relationships, their sin, and everything about their lives, and just turn it over somehow in, in some kind of humble and joyful, obedient worship. I mean, those words don't even fit together. And so the gospel seems preposterous to them. It flies in the face of everything they've ever been taught and makes absolutely no sense. Why would we receive that? I don't want that bread. It disgusts me. I mean, think about it this way, just by way of illustration. And I'm not one for a lot of illustrations, but this one might work. Um, a lot of you have small children. I think half of our church is made up of children. And what a blessed change that is. Um, and I think right now we have, what, 11 or 12 on the way. Isn't that amazing? Um, anyway, that's a different story. But so here you are. You've got your one-year-old or your six-month-old or your three-month-old. It's been too long for my family. I don't remember who gets baby food and who gets solid food. But there they are sitting in the high chair, and you've got the green baby food, and you're trying to put it in, in, in her mouth in his mouth, and he's batting it away, and you try all kinds of things to entice him. You know, if you're a dad, you take the spoon, and you pretend it's an airplane, and you, you make the noises, and you try to, you know, open the hanger, and it'll come in, and, um, and if you happen to get it in, they're going to push it out, or they're going to spit it on you. I don't like the green stuff. I do that with Brussels sprouts, you know, just don't even, I'm having dinner at someone's house. I hope there's no Brussels sprouts tonight. Um, if there is, I'll eat them. But uh, it's like that. Th that's the way they view the gospel. How is a person like that ever to be saved? How is someone in that predicament, how's it, how, what hope is there? Now, I read the text, and so you kind of know where this is going to go, right? You know it's going to be about God doing something marvelous and miraculous and, and mysterious, um, maybe that should have been my three points, marvelous, miraculous, and mysterious. But you know what's coming. So before we get there, let me, let me just say something first. Before I kind of step out of the way and let Jesus answer the question, how then can such people who are antagonistically unbelieving, how could they ever be saved? Let me just affirm for you something important that might help you before we begin, and that is at Calvary Bible Church, we are passionate in our belief about world missions and personal evangelism. 
We love to tell the story. And sometimes it terrifies us to do it, but we do it by God's grace. And we don't do it enough. We're weak on this. We're weak. We, we need to grow. We need to think about in the future, how do we as a church get better at this? And because for churches that tend to be a little more reformed, we, we can slip into the old notion that God's going to save however he chooses, and he, he'll do it quite without our help, thank you very much. But that's not the way the Bible presents it. We believe what Paul taught, that people must hear the gospel to believe for them to be saved. And so preaching the gospel is critical to God's mission. God's sovereignty over salvation does not stand in opposition to his command that we preach the gospel, minister the gospel, serve up the gospel to our unbelieving family and friends and coworkers and everybody else. We preach the gospel to the lost. I was reminded this week, just as I was thinking about this, you know I love to read missionary biographies, and one of my favorites is William Carey. William Carey, um, 1761 through 1834, who is popularly known as the father of modern missions. His biography, the one that's written by his great-grandson, S. Pierce Carey, is one of my favorite missionary biographies, and I commend it to you. It's from a publisher in England, and so it's not as easy to find, but you can find it. What many people don't realize about Carey is that he was a flaming Calvinist. Now, I'm glad I didn't hear any amens, because we don't worship Calvin here. But listen, he was, he was one of those guys. And, and that doesn't seem to make sense to us. Um, Peter Masters, who's the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, that was Spurgeon's church. He's pastor there now, I think. Not Spurgeon, but Peter Masters. <laughs> in the foreword to this biography, he writes this. As convicted Calvinists, Carey and his colleagues embraced and loved the doctrines of grace, holding to the Reformation and Puritan view of human depravity and God's predestining love and the necessity of of an irresistible work of the Holy Spirit to bring lost sinners to salvation. These same doctrines, to their mind, required them to publish, that, that means to preach, the call of the gospel uh, to, yeah, to preach the call of the gospel with utmost zeal in every corner of the world. Always their greatest inspiration and comfort in times of difficulty was the conviction that God's saving will was irresistible and therefore people would be moved to seek the Lord no matter how antagonistic their hearts might initially seem to be. Now you can say amen. And what's he saying? He's saying this. When you go out and some of our folks have, have left everything, sold everything, and gone on the mission field. And others of you take risks every, every Friday night when you go downtown and when you talk to your colleagues at work and, and family members. You take the risk that they're going to hate you for it. And you know that, that maybe in their heart they already do. They see you coming and they look for the escape hatch because they don't want to hear the gospel again. Here's the thing. You need to understand You are taking in your hands to these people. You are delivering a message that they don't want to hear. Don't think, um, I'll do evangelism when I find someone who wants to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Here's Jesus, evangelism, and they don't want to hear it. That's the nature of the message. And, And the reason is 
because that's the nature of the sinner. We look at this beautiful loaf. I'm, I'm, I picture it as, as I mean, it's, it's only an, al- an analogy, an allegory, but it's um, this beautiful round loaf of bread, you know, with powdered sugar on top on cinnamon. And, and I think, why would anyone look at that and see anything but good? And yet they do. And if we're honest with ourselves before we came to Christ, I know, I remember, I've told you this before, I remember who I was before I came to Christ. And I was a church kid. But you know what? I didn't want to have anything to do with that book. And I didn't want to have anything to do with God's people. And I didn't want really to have anything to do with Christ except if I, if, if I got some fringe benefit from hanging out in that group. But it wasn't him. And here we are. It's the doctrine of God's sovereignty over the salvation of sinners that gave William Carey hope that the gospel would, in fact, powerfully and irresistibly save some to whom they preached. Another way of saying it is this. The doctrine of God's electing grace was the fuel that drove William Carey to give up everything in England and move his family, his wife, and him to India and to ultimately become the father of modern missions. I tell you all of this to affirm what we believe We believe in missions, we believe in evangelism, and we believe it's not simply because, we believe it not simply because there are men like William Carey who believe these things, but also because of the many scriptures that say things like this. John 3.15, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. John 3.16, Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 5.24, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. John 6.35, whoever believes in me shall not thirst which is just another way of saying, we'll have eternal life. John 6, 6, 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6, 47. Whoever believes has eternal life. John 6, 58. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And John uh, 7, 38. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 12, 46. Whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. And that's just out of John. And it's this implied invitation. Come to me, all of you who are weary and are heavy burdened with that, that legalistic burden that you're carrying, think you have to earn favor with God, come to me and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Therefore, in Matthew, to break out of John for just a moment, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age go. Or as you are going. That's our mandate. That's our mandate. And I believe that. And this church stands on it and has stood on it for as long as this church has been here, I think. Now with that in mind, I want us to look at the text and learn something about the God 
who draws and invites. He draws and invites. And so let's let's look at uh, verse 41 and 42 first. Because what we find here is kind of where we need to start. What is the excuse of these men who are rejecting the bread? Here's Jesus standing before them. They've got this sweet bread. They look at it. It's all maggoty and rancidy, and, and they don't want anything to do with it. What's their excuse? And here's what they say. Here's what John says, verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying... Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Let me just point out here from the beginning that the incarnation of the Son of God has always been Christianity's greatest stumbling block for the Jews. They just find it impossible to believe that the Messiah has come and he came in the person of Jesus Christ. They simply cannot accept the idea that Jesus is the promised Christ of of God. So while he tried to explain to them who he was, and though he showed them who he was by his miracles, yet they grumbled, and they grumbled specifically for two reasons. Number one, he claimed that he was the source of eternal life. Okay, they got the bread illustration. I mean, remember, they ate the bread that he multiplied. They were part of the 5,000 who were, or 20,000, however many were there. But they had eaten the bread. They got the analogy. You're offering us eternal life. Okay, we get that. Um, they just didn't believe it. And so their first offense was that he claimed to be the giver of eternal life. And secondly, that he, come, he claimed to come down out of heaven. I mean, come on, that's too much. I mean, you can say something of an invisible dynamic like giving eternal life. I mean, anybody can claim that. But to say you came down out of heaven, and we know your family, okay? We know Mary. We know Joseph. We know your brothers and sisters. We know you. By the way, the reality that he's saying that he came down out of heaven shows us that he was claiming that his birth was unlike any other human birth that had ever taken place in history. This wasn't just theologians later on who came up with the doctrine of the virgin birth. Jesus believed it. He knew it. And we see that when he was 12 years old. And you remember he got lost, or his parents got lost. He was, he was exactly where he intended to be in the temple. And when they found him, they said, how could you do this to us? And they said, what? He said, he said what? That's in the Greek. What? Um, <laughs> Don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? I imagine him looking at Joseph at that point. Love you, Joseph. You know you're not my dad. He knew who he was. Mary was his biological mother, but he had no biological father. By the way, the whole thing about Joseph, um, I know we have many who have come out of Catholicism and And there are people in Orthodox churches who make much out of Joseph. Let me just say here, the New Testament reveals nothing about Joseph after Jesus' childhood. Statements like this one might suggest that he lived in Nazareth as Jesus was growing up. He probably died before Jesus' ministry began. I don't think we can say that the Word of God would have us exalt Joseph. Or Mary for that... um, for that 
same reason, except that Mary was his mother and she was a special person. But we don't exalt the saints. We exalt Christ. And that's who the children of God have always exalted and who Joseph would as well, which I think I'll demonstrate here in a little bit through one of Joseph's sons. In any case, the Jews excused their unbelief by this. We have known this man ever since he was born to Mary. How can he now say that he has come down out of heaven? In this case, they were convinced of his humanity, but they were blind to his deity. They could not accept that he was God. They could not accept the virgin birth. They believed him to be a man, but they also refused to believe that he was God. And that was a big problem. So what hope is there that such people who don't want to even hear this message and have dismissed it altogether, what is the hope that they might ever come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, again, that's relevant because this is the kind of person we're trying to reach. All over the world. How does that happen? Well, verses 43 and 40 through 47 explain it. Let me just read it again and get your minds on it. 43, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God, and he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. Now, what's going on here? Let me just give you another analogy. I know I'm giving you so many this morning because I know these are difficult truths. And so it helps me to think about it in analogous ways. So um, most of us don't wear watches anymore. Some of you do just because you're styling um, maybe, maybe you have a, a pocket watch or something. I have a pocket watch. I have a beautiful gold pocket watch in my drawer that my uh, sister gave me when I was a teenager. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. And you look at the front of it, and there's the timepiece, and that's the piece that matters, right? I mean, that's, you see the hands, and they're going around on this crystal, and they're telling you what time it is. Um, but that's not all there is to the watch. It's not just hands and a, and a crystal, and numbers. There's more to the watch. It's just you can't, you can't see its component parts because they're hidden behind the crystal. They're hidden behind the numbers. But if you flip it over and pop open the back, it's this magnificent thing. All of these gears and cogs and wheels and this mainspring. You know, I got one that you have to wind up and you keep it wound up. And, and, and you look at it and you go, that's amazing. And I have no idea how all that works. And I will just say to you, we look at this, and here's what we're going to conclude. That is glorious. <laughs> and I have no idea how it works. It's too much. It's too much. I can't get my little pea brain around it. But let's give it a shot, shall we? Um, four things must happen to convince unbelievers to come to saving faith. In Jesus Christ. Four things as I see it in this text. Before they're ever going to come and see the bread of life and want to have some, something has to happen. In fact, the thought of eating 
This kind of bread makes them sick, as we said, but something's going to transform their hearts. They're going to be transformed from the inside out. And the question we're answering is, how does that happen? The God of the universe will do something. What is it? Number verse 44. God, first of all, God must draw them. God must draw them. Once again, we see that the unbelief of the Jews did not distress Jesus in the least. He's not nervous. He's not having panic attacks. Oh, no, I came to do this mission, and now they're not accepting me. What do we do now? What do we do now? Nope, no panic attacks, no problem. Jesus simply rebuked them by reminding them of the offer of eternal life. But the reality is no one can obtain the promise of eternal life apart from God's effectual drawing grace. God has to move first. We love God because he first loved us. He initiates. He's always the initiator. He's always the giver. On this point, William Hendrickson writes, here the emphasis is on the divine decree of predestination carried out in history. When Jesus refers to the divine drawing activity, he employs a term which clearly suggests more than moral influence. The Father does not merely beckon or advise, he draws. This isn't about, one of the terms that people use sometimes is God wooing people. Look how much I love you. Look how much I've done for you. Don't you see that you should come? No, 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 no. It's more than wooing. It's more than inviting. He actually gets into your life and draws you to the Son. These are very solemn words. And I say that because Jesus starts off by saying, truly, truly, which can be translated, I most solemnly tell you, and this is one of those things. Jesus exposes man's absolute helplessness and inability to respond to the gospel apart from God's sovereign intervention. No unbeliever has ever come or been able to come to Christ on his own initiative. It's never happened. If God does not irresistibly draw the sinner to the Son, he will never come. He will never come. Now, what does it mean that God draws? That's a good question. If you're a good student of the Bible, you're going to ask yourself, okay, define draws. Let me, let me try to find a definition for the word draws here. Well, consider the word uh, elkuse in the Greek. And here's how, just a sampling of how it's used. John 21, remember when they see Jesus and the men are out on the boat and they hadn't caught anything and Jesus says, children, have you caught anything? And they said, oh, who's the wise guy? And he says, listen, I got an idea. Why don't you throw the net on the other side of the boat, see what you get. And John says, I, I think it's the Lord. And so they throw the net over the other side and they get this massive catch. And they bring it up to shore and the text says, and they dragged it onto the beach. The fish did not exercise their will. (laughs) Neither did the net. They dragged it onto the beach. That's how the word is used. Acts 16, 19, Paul and Silas were dragged by the mob into the forum. Acts 21, 30, Paul is dragged out of the temple. He is bound and dragged against his will in that case. James 2, 6, James warned the poor, warned the poor, 
that it was the rich who were bringing them or dragging the poor to the judgment seats. And then here's one that's a little bit different, but same word. In John 18, verse 10, the mob comes to seize Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter does what with his sword? He draws his sword. He acts upon it decisively to do something with it. And that's what we see. The word draw here doesn't simply mean to woo. It refers to the very powerful, we might say, irresistible initiative of the Father to so move in the unbeliever's heart that the activity can best be referred to as dragging or drawing. You say, well, dragging, that sounds harsh. That sounds harsh. It's not harsh. Here's a, and there are other analogies in the Bible. You could think of it as dragging, and dragging is good because, um, because it helps us see what kind of initiative God is taking. It is independent, and it is, in, in theology we say it's monergistic. He is doing it by himself. He is not asking the, the person that he is drawing to participate. He understands that they are naturally resistant, and so this work is going to be done by God alone. And this is true of your justification, right? If Isn't that true theologically? That your justification is a monergistic act. God must do it. Salvation is different. For those of you who are theologically bent, it's a synergistic act. We participate with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. But justification or our salvation is a monergistic act. Now, we could refer to it as not just dragging, but we could use another analogy altogether, and, and we could soften that analogy, not to take away from the main point. The point of that is God is acting alone on your behalf. It's like your child wants to get really, you know, we're, we're a rock-climbing family, and we have rules. If you want to look over the cliff, you've got to get on your belly like a snake and drag yourself up over it, so the only thing hanging off is your head, Right? Now, what happens if one of the children starts, you know, maybe a grandchild, and we don't have, well, we've got one, but not born yet, but one day he's going to come with us, or she, and it's going to take off across that rock. And what are we going to do? No, you don't. I'm going to grab her for her own good, and I'm going to drag her back for her salvation. Get it? So drag is appropriate when you're thinking in those terms, but you can also think in other terms like not dragging, but healing. And I think of Ezekiel 36, where God, you know, one of our children has a, has a, a, a serious heart problem. Most of you know that. Um, he's getting ready to get married, so uh, it's all his now, or about to be. And uh, in the early days, we t- were talking about heart transplant. And that's what Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel 36, a spiritual heart transplant, a healing God removing the heart of stone that's dead toward him and replacing it with a heart of flesh that beats the very rhythm and the glory of God. It's all the same thing. It's just different terms to explain it in different ways for different purposes. But it is God. Here, just think about, think about the, 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 um, the heart transplant thing. You know, I don't remember the name of, of the scientist doctor who invented local anesthesia. But you, do you know how he proved that it worked? He performed an um, appendectomy on himself with other doctors there and didn't feel a thing. Proved that it worked. Um, nobody's ever done that with a heart transplant. 
You don't do that for yourself. Somebody else must do it. And that somebody in a spiritual sense is Jesus. It's God the Father. And so why is it necessary for the Father to drag or draw unbelievers into the faith? That's a good question. And here's the answer. It's because the condition of the human heart makes us incapable of coming to him on our own. Let's take a quick survey of what the Bible teaches about the condition of the human heart. I mean, Jeremiah 17, 9, you remember that? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Let's talk about how sick. We're talking about a, a heart that needs to be transplanted. It must be a sick heart. What does that look like? Here it is. Ephesians 2, 1, dead in transgressions and sins. John 8, 34, slaves to unrighteousness. And there are more scriptures here, but I'll only give you one for each. Colossians 1.21, alienated from God. And you can go to um, other passages for that as well. Romans 5.10, hostile to God. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, spiritually blind. 2 Timothy 2.26, captive to the devil. Colossians 1.13, trapped in Satan's kingdom. Romans uh, 5.6 and Jeremiah 13.23, powerless to change our sinful natures. That Jeremiah passage is where Jeremiah asks two questions. Can a leopard change its spots and can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? And the answer to that is, duh, no. That's the analogy that he's using. 1 Corinthians 2.14, incapable of understanding spiritual truth. Uh, Romans 8.8, unable to please God. Romans 3.11, not even seeking God. And I'm not saying the human will is not involved in salvation. It is. I know it is. Because at the end of it, the person has to believe. And that must be an act of the will for it to be real. And we've already covered all of those scriptures. So when Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, he is exposing human inability to gain salvation apart from divine enablement. People can come to him only if the Father who sent him draws them to him. Ultimately, therefore, salvation depends not on human believing per se, but on the drawing action of the Father, presumably by the Holy Spirit, by which God moves a person toward faith in Christ or enables him by this miracle of transformation to believe. So, let me just remind you of the question again. The question is, these people that were bringing a message that they don't want to hear, how, what, what hope did they have of ever coming to Christ? And the first answer to that in this text, and, and this is not a systematic theology. I'm not showing you texts from all over the Bible. I'm limiting myself here to John chapter 6. And so you may be thinking of other scriptures. That's fine, but, you know, if I went off into other books, we'd never, you'd never eat lunch. So let's keep going. In order for there to be saving faith in such a person, God must draw them. Second, this is interesting, God must teach them. And this is all kind of one act. I remember asking a theological professor of mine one time, okay, so does all of this happen sequentially? And he said, think of it this way. Um, Theologically, there's a sequence. There's an ordo salutis, as we call it. There's an order of salvation. Something has to happen first and second and third and fourth. Chronologically speaking, it all happens at the same time. 
And I don't know that I can point to a scripture for that, but that's helpful to me. God must teach them is the second thing, if we can say it in those terms. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who is heard and learns from the Father comes to me. Now here Jesus is paraphrasing Isaiah 54, 13. They will all be taught of God. Now Isaiah 54, 13 is part of one of those Old Testament passages where God is promising rebellious Israel. Okay, he's been heaping judgment upon judgment upon judgment upon judgment upon Israel. And once in a while he kind of comes up for air, as it were, and says, but one day, one day, I, I will do such a miraculous thing among you that not only will I be your God, but you will willingly and delightedly be my people. And that's what he's talking about in this passage. One day, there will be a change, a personal, dramatic, supernatural change that takes place in your rebellious hearts and you will become sons and daughters of God indeed. And so one day he would be their God, they would be his people. One day true repentance and reconciliation would be brought to pass. Jesus is actually here using a prophecy concerning the salvation of the Jews, the future salvation of the Jews, to point to their inability to appropriate that salvation for themselves. It's kind of ironic He's pointing out the irony that though they pride themselves in studying the scriptures, they've never actually been taught by God. And can we just take an aside here? It's possible, because this happens every Sunday, it's possible for people to come to church and hear the word, 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 and even to some extent study the word and never be taught And a huge portion of the burden of that lies on men who stand behind such a sacred desk as this and give nothing of the gospel each week and nothing of divine truth, but rather help on how to run your business better and try to pace scriptures. And, and all I'm saying is, my friends, beware. These people made it their life ambition to study the scriptures, and yet they were never taught of God. Not in the way that he's referring to here. He's talking about salvation. The context, salvation. God drawing people. God teaching them. And he's saying, well, why the teaching analogy? Why is he saying God must teach them? And here's the thing. As an unbeliever, there are things that you don't understand. You think you understand, but everything is... Black is white and white is black and up is down and down is up and sweet is bitter and bitter is sweet and it's all, it's all kind of a muddle and you've got it all backwards and the only way all of that is going to get sorted out, the only way your worldview is going to be radically changed is if God by his Holy Spirit comes and teaches you. Now what does that mean? I think first of all it has to do with the conviction of sin. Ah, oh, sin doesn't matter, unbeliever. And suddenly the Holy Spirit comes and you go, wretched man that I am. Who would deliver me from the body of this death? I see my sin clearly. Oh God, what can I do? What must I do to be saved? 
Answer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe like a starving man who's got bread set before him would devour it and internalize all of it. All the eating analogy, it's not just believe in the bread, it's internalize the bread. Take it into you so that it gives you life. And so in John 4, when he meets the woman at the well, same thing. This water will will become a fountain within you, giving you life. You must internalize it. The only way to do that is for the Holy Spirit to teach you. For God the Father, through his Spirit, to teach you. Jesus is actually using this prophecy concerning this salvation to, to show them how they're Their study of the scriptures has not led them to the intended end. Here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned or spiritually appraised or spiritually understood. This is, I would submit to you, the illumination of the Spirit. And can I just give you a, a definition of illumination that, that might be a little different than what you've heard? <clears throat> and uh, that's always scary, but here, let me, let me go with it. And you think about it and decide whether what I'm telling you is consistent with Scripture and reality. I think that the illumination of the Spirit is not so much that God, the Holy Spirit, teaches you what the meaning of the text is. And the reason I say that is because there's so much disparity among good, godly men who have devoted their lives to knowing the Scripture and whose salvation uh, we can never question. I mean, they just they love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as best we can tell. And yet, we disagree on Scripture sometimes, the meaning of certain texts. And so, I wonder whether the illumination of the Spirit is something other than the Holy Spirit explaining the text to us. Rather, I think it's this. It's the Holy Spirit coming, revealing our deficiency, exposing reality, number one, that we're a sinner, number two, that we desperately need a Savior. We need to know that, and that's certainly biblical truth. But more than that, there's the two other aspects of the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit is um, giving us a heart, giving us a heart that loves the Word of God and truly desires to obey the Word of God. You show me someone who's not, who doesn't love the Word of God and doesn't obey the, God, the, the Word of God as, as a pattern of life. They claim to be religious, but you look at their life and go, wow, you know, I just don't hardly see anything that matches up with Scripture. And I'll show you a person to whom the Lord would say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do the things that I command? And I'm saying to you that the Holy Spirit comes, he convicts of sin, he reveals those essential truths of the gospel, certainly, and teaches us, that's the teaching part, but also gives us the desire, a love for the word of God, and a desire to obey it. Excuse me. In any case, the Spirit comes, and he teaches us. And so the inability of sinners to believe in Jesus by the force of their own will is undermined by the fact that he is not even able to comprehend the gospel without the illuminating power of the Spirit of God, who alone can give the believer the power not only to believe but to obey. 
No one can truly believe unless they are taught by God. And so you see, drawing and teaching are simply two different facets of the same diamond. Two different aspects of God's saving work in the heart of a sinner to bring about his salvation. So Jesus says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. And then he says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes from me. Let me say it this way. Everyone who has been taught of the Father comes to me. Every one of them. Every one of them. And so in order for there to be saving faith in the heart of a hardened sinner, the Father must draw them and the Father must teach them. And thirdly, the sinner must approach God through Christ alone. The reformers would call this uh, sola Christus, in Christ alone. He is our only means of salvation. Look at verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. You say, wow, that just seems random. How does him seeing the Father and us not seeing the Father, how does that have anything to do with his argument here? And, And that's the question I asked this week. Um, Jesus is the only one who has ever seen the Father. The significance of this, I think, is back in chapter 1, verse 18, where Jesus says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, listen to this, he has explained him. I think that's our answer. And he's talking about only one person has seen God, that's me. And I have come to explain God. I have come to reveal God. That's why we say Jesus is the revelation of God. He is the revealer. He's the one who reveals God. And remember, after the resurrection, one of the disciples says, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough. And Jesus says, what? Have I been with you all this time and you don't see me? It kind of blurs the line, doesn't it? But it also helps us understand why Jesus came. So that at looking at him, we would understand something of the Father. We would see the Father. That's why he came. In fact, in chapter 14, Jesus will say this. And we sang this a few minutes ago. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, so he sealed off all the other hatches. There isn't any other path. There's only one. You can only get to him through this door. When Jesus says, I am the door, he means I am the only way to God. You see, the the Jews thought they could come to God through Moses. Or they thought they could come to God through Abraham. And Jesus repeatedly telling them, listen, if God wanted more sons of Abraham, he could turn the stones into sons of Abraham. But the only way you can get to God is through me. Today, Muslims believe that they can come to God through Muhammad. Catholic and Orthodox traditions imply that people can come to God through Mary or the saints. What I'm saying is the reason people today believe there's many ways to God as people have always believed that there are many ways to God. 
And Jesus came to clarify. There are not many ways. There is only one. There is only one. If Now you see why the person has to be drawn by God. He has to be taught by God. There has to be a monergistic component to the reality of transforming a hard, unbelieving heart into a soft heart toward God that loves God, loves his word, loves his people, loves obedience, loves worship. It has to be because we rebel against this by nature. What do you mean only one way? That's pretty exclusive, isn't it? I mean, that's, that might be... Uh, That might be illegally prohibited. In some nations, it already is. It certainly makes our generation uncomfortable. You can just develop your own way to God. But that's not how God designed it. By nature, sinners, sinners are convinced that they can get to God by some other means than Jesus. But there is none. God teaches people about himself through Jesus, and God must draw people to the Son because sinners left to themselves always either invent a new Jesus based on what will suit them, or they will try to access God by some other means. And in Texas, we live in Texas where everybody's a Christian, right? Everybody thinks they're a Christian. And just start asking them who Jesus is. Who's Jesus? You're going to find out whether they've come to God through Christ. Because we just make up our own Jesus, our own Jesus. And it's not him, it's an idol in our own mind. By the way, the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, they were trying to create a new God. They created this golden calf and they said, this is our God. This is the God who led us out of Egypt and who took us through the sea and, and who brought us to this place. The God up there, the, the fiery, scary thing up on the top of the mountain, this is what he looks like. They invented their own idea of God. And God took great exception to that. A lot of people died that day. Salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. And it always has been a stumbling block for sinners. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 1.18, that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, but to us who believe, it is the saving power of God. It is the power of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. How? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God unto salvation. And so in order for there to be saving belief, in order for saving belief to come into the heart of a of a, a rigid unbeliever or even one who thinks they're, they're really close or they may even be in. It's all the same. The way that happens is this. The Father must draw. The Father must teach. The sinner must approach God only through Jesus. And number four, the sinner must believe. He must believe. Look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He who believes has eternal life. He says, I solemnly assure you. 
that he who believes has eternal life. At this point, it's clear that Jesus is speaking to the issue of human responsibility. Once again, the Father has, once he's transformed the sinner's spiritual taste buds, as it were. So you, you look back at that bread and go, hey, hey, what happened to that bread? It suddenly looks good, and I'm hungry for it. And you, and you hear David out of the Old Testament in Psalms saying, taste it, taste and see that the Lord is good. Okay, I'm ready to taste. And see that the Lord is good. Once the Father has transformed a person's spiritual taste buds, once he has con- uh, convinced him of his need for the spiritual bread and convicted him of his rebellion against God and against eating the bread, once he has made it clear that Jesus is the only bread, after all of that, true faith is ratified when the sinner, at the first imp- as a kind of a, a first impulse of a transformed will, he takes the bread and he or as I described it last week or the week before, it's like a baby being born, comes through the birth canal, he's compressed all the air, if there, all the liquid, all the fluid comes out of his mouth, and then suddenly <gasps> he breathes life, and his first, speaking spiritually, first statement, I believe. That's why Jesus calls it the new birth. And the, and the transformed sinner says, how it happened, I, I've been sitting in church all my life, I've heard the gospel 10,000 times, but there was this one time. We got, we got Good Friday coming up, I can't tell you how many people have come to know Jesus at the Good Friday service. And there isn't any preaching, it's just reading scripture and singing. But they, they hear the scriptures, they hear the word, and the Holy Spirit comes and teaches them, and God comes and draws them, and they suddenly realize Jesus, Jesus is the answer. He's my only hope. And they breathe in life and they breathe out trust. It's like that. When this happens in the deepest parts of a man's being, salvation is complete. There's nothing lacking. In fact, Jesus says, (laughs) the wording here is crucial. Jesus says, verse 47, The one who believes has eternal life. Not will have, not will have in a few minutes. Wait for it, wait for it. No, 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 no. He who believes, and this is a better translation, already has eternal life. Here's what he's saying. The sinner's profession of faith, his belief, is not the root of his salvation, it is the fruit of it. It is the fruit of what God has done in his heart. He would have never said, I believe. He would have never from the heart truly trusted Christ if it weren't for God's work in his heart, his monergistic, powerful inclination toward transforming the heart of the sinner. It would have never happened. And teaching him some basic fundamental truths about who he is and who God is. And bringing him them to the only way, the gate who is Christ, is the water of life, who is the bread, who is the Lamb of God, who is the Messiah, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, the bread Jesus offers is able to do what no other bread can, not even the manna from heaven, which we'll see next week. 
It imparts spiritual life. It sustains spiritual life. You know what that means? Every day, you come to the bread. You eat more bread. You eat more bread. You satisfy your soul. More of Jesus. It banishes death forever. And then one last thing, as if this weren't all enough, all of these transformative effects spill over into the sinner's body, your physical body. And I'm not talking about physical healing here. What I'm talking about is promise of resurrection. Watch this, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There is a sense in which your salvation is not complete until you see Jesus face to face. But Romans 8, starting around verse 10 or 11, is our promise that this God who has transformed our souls will one day transform your mortal body and conform you to the image of Christ. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait for that. I don't know if my hair will still be gray. I was sitting under a light yesterday, a reading light, and I flipped it on, and I said, children, uh, does this light make my hair look gray? And they just burst out laughing. (laughs) Daddy, don't need that light. I don't know what it's going to be like in heaven. All I know, all I can say is, the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of the Bible, his hair was white as snow, so I'm on my way. (laughs) What do you do with all this truth? What do you do with it all? And I realize my time is gone. Number one, if you haven't trusted Christ, here's the bread. It's the only thing that's going to satisfy your soul. The only means by which all your sin can be forgiven, all your guilt erased from your record. Eat the bread. That's the message that Jesus is giving these unbelievers. Eat the bread. Eat it. And number two, if you already know Christ, Don't use a passage like this as an excuse for disobeying his command to go into all the world and make disciples. Proclaim the gospel, minister the gospel, live the gospel, and call people to find their salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, beloved, the glory of God in salvation is this, that God invites all men to salvation in Christ, and he draws some irresistibly to it by his grace. Let's pray. Lord, one thing you haven't revealed to us about that mystery is why you chose us. And we know it's because of your amazing love, but we also know that none of us deserved it. I know this congregation. I've been here a long time. I know we have ex-gang members and ex-convicts and and thieves, and fornicators, and liars, and adulterers, and adulteresses, and and virtually every other sin that can be committed by a human being, and yet you chose us. How can it be? And so we glory in you, and we thank you. And we praise you. Help us, Father, to be obedient to your word just because we love you and we want to please our Father who did so much to rescue us. Praise you in the name of our Savior, Jesus.